Um, hello and welcome to our new episode of Africa's a Country Talk. Um, I'm Sean Jacobs, streaming from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm joined as always by Will Schoke in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are the co-presenters of this Africa's a Country's weekly talk and interview show, produced as always by the um, reliable and magnificent Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. This is episode 29. And if you missed our show last week, I mean, first of all, shame on you. Uh, second of all, I'm, I'm just kidding. This is a, a no judgment zone. But to remind you of what we covered last week, it was a fantastic episode we had on Sakiko Fukuda Pa to help us explore how to manage pandemics, looking at case studies from beyond the West and basically trying to understand how we can manage disease spread in a way that doesn't force us to choose between lives and livelihoods. And Sakiko was especially informative because she grew up in Japan and has been back and forth from Japan since the pandemic started and had firsthand experience of what happened over there and shared some of those insights with us. And has also researched on this area. So do check out that episode. I think it's going to be something we're going to revisit way into the future as this becomes the world's new reality. And clips from that episode are available on our YouTube channel. But I think it's better to check the whole thing out on our Patreon, as well as all of the episodes from our archive. So on today's show, we're talking about African film and TV in the age of streaming. Um, and this is basically, we just want to know like what's happening with African film. A lot of, a lot of people, because of the pandemic, I think, which induced it, uh, people are viewing films, you know, from their, on their computer, uh, they're not going to the, they can't go to the cinema. So we're wondering like, what is this doing to how people, uh, receive African film, how these films are distributed. And we have, we have some great guests, um, coming up today. Um, but first, uh, we always, before we start, in a moment, we're going to introduce our guests. But first, we thought we'd just briefly flag some pieces on the site this week that you should all check out. Um, and let me start with Will. Will, what would you recommend to the people? So what I want to recommend is actually not a piece, but it's it's our radio show, um, which is presented by our managing editor, Boy Mataka. It's been there for ages, and it actually feels pretty pretty nice to have the opportunity to promote it on here, I think. I think everyone should check it out. This episode is really, really fascinating. It has Sean on it. It has Dylan Valley, who you're all going to see in a moment on it as well. And, and basically what it is, is it's a musical as well as an historical tour of, of Cape Town as a city. And I mean, I just want to commend Dylan and Sean. You guys have exceptional music taste. Um, and I was, I was glad that I was able to, to get an insight into your musical influences. And the episode is just put together really well. It has some interviews with uh, snippets with Valmont Lane, and it's just awesome. Check it out. But I think one thing I wanted to reflect on quickly, which I think pertains to this episode, is that when, when I listened to it, I became just sort of reacquainted with just how remarkable cultural production was during apartheid, which is this thing of how, despite all of the tremendous constraints that people faced, all of the tremendous hardship that people faced, they were still able to produce music that somehow was able to synthesize this tension between the local and the international, between having to be modern, as well as still drawing from traditional roots, and I think above all, 
managing to be popular. It was, it was, it was all mass culture at the time. But despite it being mass culture, it still had this emancipatory content. And just being reacquainted with, with all of that music from that time, I think, had me thinking about the show that we're going to do today. And, and, you know, one danger that I always try to guard against is, is trying to romanticize the apartheid era to sort of fall into that trap of thinking, ah, oh, you know, ever since then, we just haven't had music like they made it back then. We haven't had cinema like they made it back then. Uh, and, and trying to just, yeah, understand what it was that made it the case that music was able to be this powerful social force that was political, but at the same time also deeply cultural and personal for a lot of people. Um, so I think everyone should check out that episode. And uh, I think it's an incredible radio show and kudos to Boima for for always being on top of his game with that and for Sean and Dylan's input. So that's what I wanna highlight this week. So I was gonna, great, great, great summary there, Will. In the first minute, I think the first two or three minutes of the program, it's like um, the Adan, so it's like like somebody, um, the call to prayer, like music, which is a sort of local for, so like that's like literally in the first two or three minutes. Oh, not Guma, it was actually what people in South Africa call, in Cape Town called Nachtruppe, which means like night troops, people who sing. Uh, these are mostly like uh, Muslim groups uh, wearing suits and they sing these like quaint Dutch songs. And this is like the opening like three, four minutes of this program. Exactly. So I definitely recommend the program. Um, I'm going to reciprocate the thing I'd like to recommend. Um, oh, no. <laughs> this is, this is I don't know, somebody watching now is just like, yo, these people, can they mention other people's articles? Um, it's it's about the school system in South Africa, and it's entitled "What Is Learning For," um, and it is written to coincide with the release of what they call in South Africa "matric results," which is like the the senior year of high school. This is like your the big exam that you write um, at, at for the last exam, if, you know, to whether or not you qualify to go to university or whether you just get a pass that allows you to get to a technical college, etc. And what will actually explore in the article is the differences between a private education in South Africa where the result, the passing rate is really high and the, the, the rate for public schools, which by the way, where the majority of the students in South Africa goes to school. And it's an exploration of kind of just kind of critiquing what's happened to, to education, particularly public education in South Africa. And as a result, it's also a critique of sort of um, post-apartheid society. And I'm, it's really nicely written. It's, a, it's a very much a polemical piece. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can recommend it. Um, uh, 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 full-heartedly. So uh, here's a reminder to hit and like um, the subscribe uh, button on YouTube, uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, and please subscribe to our Patreon where you can access all of, of, of the episodes from this program, and you can also help us fund Africa as a country in general. So on today's show then, as I said at the outset, we're talking about African film and TV um, in the age of streaming. And what we're recognizing is that now more than ever, ever, Africans have access to not just content, but also big budget content that is locally produced, that is produced um, um, on the continent. And especially Netflix. Netflix is, is being very prominent in this kind of moment, using original programming as a way to attract African audiences. So this is not necessarily altruistic. It's also a business decision. Um, and so uh, the market, uh, uh, Netflix, I think, Netflix investing in these things that the market will grow 
to about 13 million subscribers by 2025. So we're talking about shows like Queen Sono, um, Blood and Water, um, and also the there's a new Nollywood film, uh, Namaste Wahala. This is the film. This is like an Indian African romance, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, um, that's that's it. <laughs> uh, these films have all <laughs> well smiling. Um, they've all uh, uh, globally trended, and they made uh, they make Africans feel. This is in Will's words for once that they are the ones exerting cultural influence on the West rather than it being the other way around. But how true is this actually? Um, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to have uh, two sets of discussions. We, we're going to start by um, inviting a panel to join us. They are Dylan Valley, who's an award-winning filmmaker and lecturer at the University of Cape Town, uh, Sarah um, Hanneberg, who's a scholar of African literatures and cinema at St. John's University, um, and uh, Toho Kupa, who's a writer and filmmaker based in, in Johannesburg. You may recognize them. Uh, Toho and Sarah are contributors um, to Africa as a Country, where they've written about film, um, including about the politics of streaming services. Actually, Toho wrote about um, uh, Queen Sono, and Sarah recently, uh, in the last week or so, wrote about um, kind of prompted by the New York African Film Festival, which is our later guest, Mahen Bonetti, who's the director of that film festival. Sarah wrote as a result of that festival, asking questions about streaming. And Dylan, as you know, he is a longtime editorial board member um, of, of Africa as a country. So to start things off, um, I'm just going to ask them this very simple question. What is so great about streaming? So if you could, you can be, you, this could be a thesis. You could write your doctoral thesis. <laughs> but, um, just, by, just, just tell me what is great about streaming. If you could list at least like I don't know two or three things that you think has been what's been great about streaming for African film. Film, sorry. Any one of you can start. Sarah, why don't you go? Sure. Yeah, I was. I, I would like to say possibility, accessibility, and um, and just the general kind of uh, a wide reach. And we've seen this too during this time where we're. All at home. I mean, these are the possibilities, right? That we can see more stuff. I've seen films by um, Paulin Vieira twice in this pandemic on streaming that I never caught at a festival before. So um, I, I would say that those are three um, three aspects I would think of, but they all have uh, they all have caveats. So, well, hold the hold the camera yeah. for the next question. I wanted to start with the positive first. Um, yeah. Joel? Um, I think another one is just like um, like you said, access. Because I think what streaming allows you to do is to pay a fixed fee for a wide variety of films, so you're not necessarily um, having to wait from from films like festivals or to pay like a specific fee for every time you go watch a film. You can just play a, a pay a flat fee and just have a you know a wide access to everything. So like one of the interesting things about Netflix that they have all the films from um, Egyptian filmmaker Yusuf Khaine, you know, who if there was if it wasn't for Netflix, I'd have to, you know, use an ethical or other means to go get it. But like it's all there at once and I can, you know, just watch everything in one sitting, which is quite unique. Mm -hmm. Dylan? Yeah, um, totally agree with what Soko and Sarah have said. And I think the great thing about uh, Netflix and streaming sites for um, for creatives or like the creators of these programs mm -hmm. that, that 
uh, you get greater freedom, creative freedom to make your content. It's, only, it's normally what people say. Or your, I don't like using the word content. So, uh, to <laughs> your shows or your films, um, and that's because of the subscriber model versus the uh, the advertising model. Uh, what, what, that's one of the reasons is that you don't have to sell spots to advertisers. The 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 uh, broadcaster doesn't have to think about. Uh, will this be appealing to our advertisers? Or if you're dealing with like a national broadcaster like we have in South Africa, the SABC, you have kind of these government-created uh, mandates that you have to that you have to follow. So, um, so in that sense, streaming also allows um, for more interesting stuff or slightly more subversive things. Um, it, it can allow for those things for creators as well. So in terms of maybe what's not so great, Dylan, you just mentioned you don't like the word content. So <laughs> what, what's, what's not so great about streaming? Besides the fact that I think all of us have occasional spells of addiction, uh, what is maybe a, a drawback of these, these new technologies? I think I'd have to say, oh, no, I, no, think no, I'd no. Have to I think I'd have to say it is what Dylan mentioned in terms of, you know, um, content, because I think the nature of content is that it's naturally um, about, you know, mass production. So one of the things that disheartened me the most about, for example, you know, Blood and Water was that it's enticing enough to like um, capture the public imaginary for like, you know, a month, but that's the entirety of it. And with Netflix's model is that like, it's blood and water for this month, and then the next month is probably third reasons why, or sex education or something else, but it's, and then after that will be another season of something else. So it's this whole rotating model. Yes, it's for niche markets, for example, like teen melodramas, but it's still, they have a rotating schedule. So it doesn't seem like they're, at least at this stage of Netflix's career, they are about making meaningful um, television and or cinema. It just means they use, they are trying to cultivate like a, a recurring, um, just production bolt of the same thing to satisfy the taste. And each and, ev and each and every one of those products aren't even, aren't meant to be, be in any way like impactful in any sense. Yeah, yeah I would I would echo Soko um, with that. And also add that, um, for example, like in Netflix original content that is marketed as as being um, as being African produced content made for African audiences. But if you look into it, the African audiences are not getting those. Like Netflix in Senegal is showing American History X, Johnny Mad Dog, which was a French adaptation of Emmanuel Dongala's um, book. But then they're watching Fast and Furious. They're watching you know, Cobra Kai, uh, Karate Kid. So, um, hey, I watched that with my son, so don't be sure. too hard. <laughs> I want to watch these things, but, but the audience, right. it's interesting because, you know, the, yeah, I mean, the, the marketing is a little bit misplaced or not quite getting there. So I would say that's, a, that's an issue. Yeah. But we do have fun watching Karate Kid. <laughs> great. I'll just go out and say it. <laughs> what about you, Dylan? What do you think? Yeah, it's really, I mean, I think this stuff is really interesting. And also, um, in terms of what Soho is saying about um, kind of like what you find on there, like what's what's exciting sometimes is you can find stuff like, like a, for example, a friend had a short film that was on Showmac, which is like South Africa's 
localized version of Netflix, which is owned by MultiChoice, right? Which is that's a whole other conversation, we can have, right. <laughs> which we probably should have at some point, like a nice person or that. But um, so this film was on there for a while, and I was I was really happy that like if I ever wanted to watch um, this my friend's film, I could go to Showmax. It's kind of like it's kind of like this archive that has it. And a few months later, it was just gone because the the licensing um, mm. uh, agreement had like run out. So you kind of we kind of think about these things as these great uh, repositories or archives of, of films that are important and culturally relevant. And like Soko was saying, sometimes they'll be there, but um, sometimes they'll just disappear, and we don't really have uh, much of a control over how they operate because a lot of these streaming sites. Uh, which I kind of like to think of them almost more like tech companies than broadcasters. They're kind of very mysterious about how they do things, and it's not always quite clear on how the processes work. So you, it, it, it often feels like you don't have that much power over uh, what's going on um, behind the scenes. So that's that's also a downside, I would say. Um, I wanted to ask Tocho specifically. You wrote at the time when you when you wrote a, a for us about Queen Sono. Mm -hmm. um, you wrote that since Hollywood's cinematic conventions have been entrenched as hegemonic cinematic conventions, the possibility um, of international filmmakers and, and by extension, I, you know, meaning African filmmakers also to work outside of that mold is almost impossible. Can you just kind of like, and then I'd also like to hear what the others think about Kudsono, but can you, can you just explain a little bit what you mean by that by reference to that, to that um, series? Um, thanks, Sean. Um, so my general complaint about Queen Sono was that it felt like a Hollywood spy thriller that was kind of copy pasted into into like a Stafkin context. And I elaborated on the idea that the Hollywood spy thriller was sort of um, the genre that at least today is a vestige of the Cold War because, and again, prominence during the Cold War because um, at the time for people in Europe and the West, um, these ideas of international conspiracy uh, were quite enticing to audiences who were um, fearing the a nuclear threat from the, from the Soviet Union. And then, um, I mean, you can look at the ev evolution of Bond villains throughout the years to see that it still serves that function today in terms of embellishing threats from foreign third forces in order to, you know, in order to fear monger American citizens. And I think when it was adapted to Queen Sono, it didn't seem like there was any thoughtful at least deconstruction of what adapting that genre to the African context would mean. But it's also that I think um, it's something I picked up when I heard Kehisodeha kind of talking about doing the press stuff for Queen Sono and he talked about how he wants to make, you know, African content with like a global focus. And in my idea, I was like, but what do you mean? And it seems like what he meant by that is making content that was that was in some way geared towards global taste. And that doesn't mean necessarily creating anything new formally, but packaging African stories within a format that Western audiences are somewhat accustomed to. And I think I sense that in what I saw in Queen Sono, and it also fits in with the mandate of what Netflix wanted, which is what they want, is that they wanted, you know, the flagship African series to also blow up globally. And I think that the interest of Chris Rodeja and Netflix was kind of a perfect marriage at that time. And I think so far, um, my suspicions at the time were kind of proven with, um, you know, Blood and Water, which I think attempts to um, adapt the same 
um, drama thriller, melodrama that you see in like um, Gossip Girl or Third Reasons Why or Riverdale in a, in a South African context. And then also ways that, you know, it doesn't really work. So that's what I meant by that statement. And I think so far, um, I, I still do hope to be proven wrong, <laughs> but I haven't yet. So what do you, so was, I wanna. Oh, go ahead, Will. Okay, I'll, what I wanted to ask is to, to sort of, and, and I wanna hear what everyone else thinks of this, this idea that Netflix always tries to package local context and contest and content rather like I can't even say the word is how much I hate it. They try well, to I think I think Alan jinxed you on that content thing. He did, he did. <laughs> they, they try to package local material in a way that it is appeasing to the preferences of, of international audiences. Um and I mean when you think of you know Namaste Wahala, I, I saw Bhakti in the comments and I feel I feel so sorry, Bakhtin. We'll 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 make it up to you. But uh, she has strong opinions on Namaste Wahala, for example. But it's this Nigerian movie that you feel tries to sort of um, draw from Nollywood sort of influences and and customs and and so on. Nollywood and Bollywood actually uh, influences and customs. But you, do you think that constitutes a, a serious effort at at trying to I suppose draw from from local filming traditions and styles, or, or is it just another case of 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 drawing from that, but in a way that it, it makes it palatable for 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 another another eye, which is the, the international or, or, or market segment. I mean, not even for another eye. I think when I when I see Namaste Wahala, I, I look at it often as kind of like this is a deliberate attempt to kind of capture two separate markets and figure out how you could. I don't know, you know, how you could merge them and make money of it. I mean, I'm just, I'm being, you know, at a very cynical level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, like, with, with, uh, like, the joke there, like, the thing about, uh, about, like, Netflix and the streaming sites is that they actually, uh, they often pose, pose this as kind of service, you know, not only to, uh, not only to the industry but also to creators, but it actually they are they exist to, to make as much money as possible, to sell as much subscriptions as possible. That's usually like the aim of what they do, even when they are producing some really excellent work, right? Or they're doing some really good work. But at the at the core of it, what they what Netflix is doing is expanding as much as they can. And that's what that's really what they're kind of doing in Africa, you know. Um, and uh, that's also something to keep in mind. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily evil uh, or so forth, but they, in a way they've be, they're becoming kind of like the Google of, of online film and TV and that they are expanding so rapidly and in so many places and have so much control over the market that uh, it's becoming quite uh, interesting to see how they're operating uh, in that way. Um, Sarah, do you want to do you want to say something about that? Because I have another question I want to ask. Um, yeah, I, I think I think um, not to be too cynical. I want to say that probably Netflix is making a huge um, effort to promote, as they're saying, like a positive image, which um, which hasn't has historically been the case. It's been negative images of um, what we don't need to see, you know, which is not the reality of life. Like life 
we live and dance and so but yeah this um this uh this kind of this polished version whether uh one film or the other i actually even saw catching feelings recently <laughs> you know <laughs> that's got be so the same guy right who made the blood and sugar right yeah or queen oh, yeah sorry queen solo yeah yeah so I, I wonder, I'm, I may be off, but I wonder if, um, you know, because uh, Nollywood is such an organically grown, um, affordable cinema making pro uh, process and it has spread everywhere, like from Tanzania to um, Cote d'Ivoire and, uh, and across. Um, and of course, I'm South Africa has a, a pretty good industry going, so I'm not talking about Right, that's a that's a whole other level. But maybe if if Netflix, if they're going on the popularity and entertainment, maybe there's something with um, with Nollywood formats. But my interest would be more auteur cinema and how to get that um, to more audiences. And it could be interesting if if it was even uh, a license for for some time. For example, I mean, how are how are we going to bring like Abiraman Sisako, um, Mahamat Saleh Haroon, Alan Gomis um, to Netflix? It would be great. I mean, there's certainly a, a, a spectator market for it. The question also, there's like who produces their films often and whether they are willing. I'm not saying in the case of these filmmakers, but sometimes they're also African filmmakers who don't put their stuff on those streaming services because they also don't want to be exploited. I mean, there's so many, Yeah. like you, there's a lot of films I'd like to see on there, but they're not there because there's, you know, the producer in France or whoever is wants to charge so much for, for films that often is niche. And so you wonder like, why I can't see that. But I wanted to just quickly ask another, just a related question um, to, to the Queen, to just get when before we move off Quinsono as an example. One, one of the comments that people made when Quinsono came out was that it did at least try to, even if it did conform to conventions or played into like a particular kind of genre, the spy genre, it also tried to, it seemed, wanting to deal with aspects of local liberation history, of betrayal, of, you know, like um, linking it to, I, I'm, I'm yet thinking particularly of like sort of race politics within the ANC or you know, the, the, the dominant liberation movement in South Africa or um, about the liberation struggle and how the liberation struggle lives into the present. Even if it's imperfect, did you, for you, Choho, did you think it did not, it just couldn't do that because it was too trapped in the format? Um, yes, actually. Um, I think because also if you just, if you generally look at, sort of the history of African cinema, you get to see um, how a lot of the times where African filmmakers are faced with, you know, unique problems, they often find unique story forms to adapt to those problems in order to, you know, um, tackle those questions um, distinctly and uniquely. And I do think that, um, yeah, like I said in the final paragraph, that I think it could only really be so good that because it's within this, within this mold, because, you know, Hollywood has never really, been known for any politically, ra politically radical cinema. And I think to some extent, Queen Sona was trying, did have a thought in the right place and was trying to be somewhat, you know, 
particularly interesting. But if you're playing with, you know, Hollywood's tools, you kind of, they basically are blunt objects if you want to raise and explore the questions, you know, it really wants to. So it's interesting, this reflection on, on Hollywood's inability to, to sort of uh, engage in any kind of political cinema. And I want to use that as a, as a transition to start talking about auteur cinema, which you just raised right now, Sarah. Uh, when I think of, you know, there's that big essay that Martin Scorsese recently wrote for, for Harper's Magazine. And in it, he obviously he reflects on the distinction between content and curation. And he says that curation is this act of generosity where people put together things that have profound meaning and impact on them. And, you know, we want to get a lot of auteur cinema out there. We want that to be more accessible to people. We want all of the cinema that is radical and that does have political content to them. But I want to start with a with a provocation, which is, uh, you know, why? Uh, why? Why is this something that people should care about? Why do we think this is a kind of cinema that matters and as such should be out there? Big like question. <laughs> Go ahead. I that, but before I answer your question, I'm going to answer a question that I, I wanted you to ask me. If that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, yeah, so, like, I just wanted to say, also, like, some positives about the kind of TV that we see on Netflix. And I'll, I'll talk specifically about the South African stuff before I get to the auteur stuff, which I do think, you know, we'll get to now, and it's really important. But there's also some um, some positives, even though they, they're like, I agree with Sofo that, um, that we're dealing with kind of these models, these trying to fit African stories to these what we call universal um, kind of models that we know work, that Hollywood they see works and, the, and culturally doesn't always fit. Um, I do think that Blood and Water and um, How to Ruin Christmas, which is also another Netflix original, were, were quite interesting in that they were, um, they both centered like, like black female leads. Mm -hmm. uh, also in unconventional ways, unconventional, not because of the, the characters were totally out there, but, but usually you don't get to see uh, black women portrayed in this way in the South African context. So, so for example, in this show called How to Ruin Christmas, which is basically like a, it's basically like a wedding movie, but kind of broken up into a, a series, like a mini series. Um, uh, the lead uh, characters were what, it's totally, you know, it's like just a little bit uh, what what generally how would frame someone um, in this kind of movie as you'd see as like promiscuous or kind of just all over the place and that kind of thing. But the, they never try and uh, moralize about it. So she's just kind of uh, she, they normalize this 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 woman who's completely imperfect but totally also fun to watch and actually just a normal person. But a behavior under other circumstances, we call promiscuous or weird or loose woman. So I think in those ways, like uh, it's exciting. I think for creators to have a platform of Netflix, to be able to explore those kinds of representations. That I think at a national broadcaster, you wouldn't see that. It would be a little bit too much for them. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear also what others have to say about about that. Even with 
and I have to admit I haven't yet watched Queen Sono because I'm I'm kind of waiting for the right time, so I'm kind of scared to put on this. It's like the definitive African Netflix series, so I haven't watched it yet, but I've read Sofo's piece multiple times, so I feel like I've watched it. <laughs> uh, what I would say is that in terms of auteur cinema, um, I think auteur cinema is important, but I think the idea of of auteurs are also it's a it's also a Western concept, which is like this idea of the the the, the this kind of filmmaker genius um, who makes these films in this like specific era and movement. It there there have been auteurs in Africa, yes, but often like this when we think of auteur, we, we usually think of a man, and we think of the greats, and so I would say. Um, these and I'm not kind of undermining Zembene and all these amazing uh, filmmakers, um, but I, I also think that we have to maybe think a little bit outside of just authorship and kind of think of think about how can we also build new things, how can we build new ways of working, how can how can we support kind of radical film collectives, right? Um, and at the same time, I'm also aware that a lot of times we haven't even seen all of these forms that are really important from around the continent, especially in the South African context when we're so, um, we were so disconnected from even our neighboring countries, right? So like, so I'm saying this and being aware at the same time um, that a lot of South Africans, like most South Africans have never heard of Tukibuki, right? Um, so yes, like we need the, we need authorship uh, we need to watch those auteurships. We also need to think outside of auteurship a little bit as well. I just wanted to throw that in the mix. Right. Um, um, that's it's just something that that always comes up for me as well. Sarah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I guess about. I don't know if even a balance. I mean, popular entertainment, right? Entertainment cinema. So what I would say is interesting about auteur cinema. Um, is that it engages, I mean, as a, as a genre, it, it is around from the beginning of African cinema, which was um, the, the purpose or the filmmakers' uh, motivations for making film was to make the audience think, to engage the audience. And in fact, that was in opposition to entertainment, which, um, which, which certainly we can think of in different terms in the past and to now, um, but but people still crave it. And um, and if you're, uh, for example, I mean, there's if everything is available, sometimes you do want to watch a film that you can discuss with your friends or even professors using them in classes. Um, I. Also, you know, thinking of something like an, as an archive, I'm thinking of, you know, Jibril Mambeti's films lately and um, Usman Sambain's films. They're all restored and in box sets. And mm -hmm. it would be pretty, I imagine that it would be an interesting thing. I will have to ask Mahan too, how that works out with, um, with, film festivals because and as you're saying i mean one of the main things is that you want also the you want the filmmaker and the actors to make money out of it you know and that's probably one of the most important things right so i mean there's a balance i think between the entertainment and the 
and the auteur, but the auteur has that value, you know, it's, it's that we can't just relegate all of the, uh, it doesn't always get, a, entertainment cinema doesn't always get that kind of academic um, nod and everything. So hold. Um, I really like the contributions from Dylan and Sarah, but uh, I'm kind of more, I, I, I really, one of the things that I was really hoping for when Netflix came here was that, uh, is that, you know, just being a recent film student, you can't, and just going through the history of African cinema, you kind of get this idea that, um, that there used to be a strong tradition of African cinema that, you know, was a part of the, the third cinema movement. So it really took um, sympathy with the working class. It had very progressive gender politics for their time and was also very formally inventive and was always trying to reinvent itself with different filmmakers, always trying new ideas, trying new different things with the form to, you know, question and answer specific questions to their times. So when I read Sarah's piece, I think um, she kind of noticed something that I was also, you know, somewhat hoping for was, sort of maybe streaming being a new home for like a newer wave of African cinema for somewhat a call back to the older tradition. And I think um, I really loved Mathieu Job's Atlantiques because that felt like, you know, a film that was, you know, just beautiful. It was, it felt fresh and it felt very much like a continuation of, it felt, mm -hmm. you know, it felt very much like a continuation of, for example, Usman Sabina's Khala. So I do think that, yes, um, that there's a need for artistship, maybe not in the, singular individualist sense that Dylan refers to. I do agree that there needs to be um, a focus on more radical forms of how a film is produced and how creativity and rights like that are shared. But I also do agree that there needs to be a streaming platform and a streaming um, environment that sort of um, nurtures and encourages um, new ideas and more riskier paths for creatives to take. So that sort of brings, I mean, this, this brings us to a sort of final question. Um, based on all of your contributions, I think we were all hoping for what I think is what would be really awesome if it could, if these streaming platforms could serve as a repository for all of these films, if they could be more widely available for people. But you always end up at this question, which I would want to ask as a final question to all of you, which is, I mean, is it even possible to to do something meaningful with, with African cinema uh, under consumer capitalism? Is everything always doomed to being commodified, to do being mass produced, and to being exploitative? Or, or as you know, Dylan was was mentioning earlier, are there pathways opening up? And and if so, where are they? And what are they? Or and is streaming one of them? And if it is, what needs to happen for it to be uh, an effective one? Well, I'll I'll say yes. I mean. You know, Netflix is not the only streaming uh, out there, and they won't be the last. In fact, I think we're going to see a lot more streaming sites uh, popping up over over time, especially now due to like the high um, the high popularity of Netflix. Like they had like 60 million new subscribers only in the first quarter of 2020 because of lockdowns. So I think there'll be more players in the game, and there actually need to be more players in the game. And um, I look at something like, and Sean, if you remind me, there, there was a new, uh, you told me about this, a new streaming service that, uh, that was specifically showing leftist content. And that they focused yeah, I mean, on- Yeah, TV. Yeah. News TV, yeah, in the US, there's a, 
is an art house cinema streaming service called Mubi, which you guys probably heard of, heard of MUBI. I mean, I think if we could if we could have an African version of a Mubi, that would be great. And then and uh, and because Netflix challenge uh, accepted, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and so so that that's what I would like to see. Yeah, I think um, even to somewhat um, venture outside of the streaming realm, I think um, something that um, Usman Bennett did is he really got into filmmaking initially because he was initially an author and he felt he, his books weren't reaching enough people. So mm -hmm. one of the ways he distributed his films once he started making films, I think, is I think he used to um, you know, have a traveling cinema and he used to like riding on a bike and you know, travel to different villages and showing his films. And I think um, there's a there's a company, Sunshine Cinema, which kind of does the same work in terms of they have a traveling cinema that like operates outside of um, a solar powered box. And I think something like that is quite interesting in terms of, you know, how do you take work and reach it to the people who isn't reaching to, you know, instead of um, putting money to, to, you know, maybe enhance networks or data packages, you can actually, you know, take those content and, well, content, and, you know, directly show it to these, to, you know, communities that isn't reaching would benefit from um, these things being shown. Sarah, you have the last word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a lot of possibility for you know for distribution and for whether niche markets or more entertainment cinema. I think with the younger generations and with new filmmaking, I think with like. Um, filmmakers like I'm gonna say Alain Gomis again. He, you know, filmmakers like this. We, they're working with local communities. He in France and um, with immigrant communities and with you know helping to learn filmmaking. I'm thinking of Basak Bakobio in Cameroon, who has you know developed this Ecole Noir festival, which has really generated a lot of industry, new filmmakers, new directors, um, new actors. And um, and I think yeah, so I think that there's a lot of possibility. So to get out of that Hollywood <laughs> niche too. On the, on that, I mean, I think it's up to you guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna give the give the challenge to you guys to figure out how to how to make these possibilities in actuality. And on on that note, thank you so much for maybe for joining. Maybe, maybe we should build that that art house streaming service that. that, that <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Stay, stay we'll have a quick meeting Anyway, we want to we want to transition season to somebody who's actually done some of this kind of work. So we want to thank this. Uh, we want to thank uh, our panel for coming on. We we had to scramble at the last minute because of some technical difficulties, and we're happy that you just filled in um, rather than you coming on later. But our original first guest, but now she's on, and we're happy to to welcome her, Mahen Bonetti who is a pioneer in contemporary African oh, film. Oh, there she's waving at you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we, we can, can hear you. you. Okay, and I'm so sorry, but it, the irony that I was technologically challenged, you know, generally that <laughs> with on our side of the world that has, <laughs> you know, is spotty. <laughs> right, so we, we're happy to have you. You, for people who don't know, in the early 1990s, you started the New York African Film Festival, which changed the way that American um, Americans consume films from and about Africa. And you've also, um, I mean, this is what we try to explore with you, your firsthand experience of transformation from people primarily viewing films about Africa 
um, offline and now to these films being available both in film festivals as well as um, as on, on streaming services like like we've mentioned Netflix, Amazon, Showmax, Iroko, Criterion and so on. So why don't we just start by asking you a, a very sweet question, Ryan. How did you discover cinema? Like what made you fall in love with film? Um, well, first of all, I'm not a filmmaker, neither am I an academic. I just love the, I was like a Sunday painter, you know, who would go to the cinema because I wanted to learn about myself. You know, I wanted to see images that reflected who I was. And, um, and I, I think, you know, so I saw Ran, I saw Pichot, uh, Amakod, and then I discovered African cinema. And the first one I saw was, the first film I saw was Usman Semben's Chedo. And I mean, it, 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 it was, it, it uh, moved me in a way like uh, dipping my foot in a, in a stream of water and the temperature feels a certain way. And then I went back a second time and that temperature felt another way. And that was, you know, the floodgates opened. And um, at the time, this was now the early 80s or mid 80s. And the only places you could see films by, I think Sarah was speaking of the auteurs, was uh, either uh, New Directors, New Film, um, Public Theatre at the time, New York Film Festival. And um, so whenever a film came through the, you know, by Mambeti, Safi Fai, I would call everyone I knew and I would go into the theater and it was 90% European Americans and maybe 5% people who looked like me. And, you know, so for us, when we started, I realized it's, it's all about also access to information, who has that power, who has, you know, how does the community learn about these films? Because for me, if I wanted to see myself reflected on, you know, on the big screen, Mm -hmm. the way I believe I should be reflected, I would think everyone else who looks like me wants to also know, have this information and see these images. And um, so at the heart of it, African Film Festival is a community-based organization. When we, so before we even started, launched the organization, I made sure that we went into the community. I always, use this analogy of going to, into the chief's courtyard, you know, knocking on the door and saying, you know, who, letting them know who we are, what we want to do, and to get the blessing of the community. And that is what we did. And in so, fact, yes, sorry. To ask you, sorry, to ask you a question related to that, mm -hmm. uh, during the time when you were going back to the community and entrenching yourself there, mm -hmm. what were the conditions for African films? Um, when you started the festival, could you take us back to that time? <laughs> were people watching these films in those communities that were you in, outside of those communities? Were people watching those films? What was it like? No, because uh, I mean, when those films would come through, it was that niche audience that had that access to the information, the Village Voice, the New York Times, the Review, and by the time we got into the community, the film had come and gone. And you know, you know, for us, it's an occasion to go into the theater. You know, twelve people would come, even if they came half hour before the film ended. You know, they would go back and tell everyone in the community what they saw. They'll recall the story. You know, recount the story to the community. So, 
it was mainly about access to that information because a lot of people didn't even know that Africans or black people made films about themselves, you know? Mm. And um, then also, where do you get to see the films? So, you know, you always had, you'd go to a theater, um, you know, the blockbusters, of course, just like how you have these heightened melodramatic, you know, uh, Nollywood films that are very popular. And um, those, you know, the markers, you tick off the markers, but that does not reflect who we are necessarily. It is a model that is, I believe one of the guests spoke about that, you know, um, that, you know, appeals and it's, it's, it's sort of easy to, you know, to um, curate this type of programming. Um, but coming back, there was a lot of things you guys discussed that were really interesting. Um, Netflix, I've heard, has the entire library of Yusef Shaheen. But who knows that? Right. And it's buried in there somewhere. And then there's a Blitz, uh, the burial of Kojo. Uh, and who knows? I mean, it's, it's just, I guess it's also... Um, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on this. Yes, there's this convergence of art and commerce with them. But at the same time, we're billion strong in, you know, we are the last frontier. How do we as a people start, you know, galvanizing our own, you know, there's Nollywood, there's South Africa. So for me, the work I'm doing is basically trying to, you know, block out this chatter, this and try to look inward and how do we speak to each other? So yes, there's nothing that beats that in-person experience, but right now you have to pivot, okay? So, and how do you make that happen in this, you know, sort of virtual world? And that's what we're trying to you tweak and edit. And, um, and of course, you know, there are the advantages and disadvantages to that. The advantages is that you can have a program longer online, you know, yeah. the, viewer has time to, you know, has, has um, you know, a longer, you know, um, time frame to watch the film. Mm -hmm. The bonus content of the interview is more nuanced. It's a hell of a lot of work on our part, <laughs> sure. You know, I was saying to Sean, one of the, there was the, the interview that took place starting between Gabon and Burkina Faso, sent to Belgium to translate, to put the time code, sent to Senegal to translate into English, and then went to Mexico to burn on the, because this is how we work, you know, guerrilla style still. But it's, 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 it's not, it's more than just presenting the film. It's also, the environment in which you present it and the presentation itself, because I think you're debunking so many stereotypes, you know, it's equally as important what they see and what is said, what surrounds that frame. And so, for yeah. us, hmm? no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry for interrupting you. So for me, I feel that, you know, this has been our greatest gift to the world culture, you know, when I look, you know, coming to America and then, you know, seeing that all that the references of what constitutes America's culture has Africa's footprints in it. So I want to celebrate that as well as, yes, there's that reality of what's taking place. But I want us as a people to really realize, you know, the gift we've given the world and also to, you know, to enrich ourselves. So 
it's it's not too dis i mean i believe in diversity yes that is important because it's about humanity in the end you know and um but uh, I, I i find that that sort of space in which we can convene even if it's virtual and have a conversation is really yeah it's so i mean I'm, I'm interested in that thought, especially, which is about mm -hmm. the importance of convening about mm -hmm. the, the sort of kind of ceremonial practice of being together mm -hmm. to watch and absorb a film. And I, I've read in, in other interviews you've given, reflecting mm -hmm. on how you've often been surprised at, at some of the screenings you've had where the majority of the audience is black. And in the past, you would always think that is the okay. preserve of middle yes. class or upper middle class audiences who are who are white and i've had similar experiences and yes. i mean how is that lost in the sort of transition into the virtual realm and mm -hmm. how do we how do we retain some of that and what are the ways in which you as this festival are, are thinking of, of replicating that and have you been successful okay for us i think first of all you have these advantages of social media right and you've also, one of the advantages we have is that our audience base is is really broad. So mm -hmm. you have the, you know, the traditional, um, you know, um, audience that is is into the art house. Then you have the ones who like popular cinema, and then, as I said, really reaching your audience, your 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 communities. You know, making sure they have access to the information is important. So. In that sense, there is a lot of, um, you know, and then um, there's this, this, you know, this, as I said, the social media platforms. So there's a lot of conversation going on amongst varying groups of people around the, you know, the curated program. So in that sense, I think we are still retaining that, you know, cohesive audience that we have for the in-person experience. And even more so because we're reaching nationally now with the virtual screening, you're reaching the US. Um, and one of the downsides, of course, of the virtual screening is also, you have to adhere to this geo-blocking um, you know, requirement. And there it breaks your heart because the people whose stories are being told you know, on the continent necessarily don't have access to it. But on the other hand, you have to respect the intellectual property of the person who's, who has, you know, gifted you with this, with their content. And, um, but we are, but they, in fact, speaking of that, today we got a note from someone in Australia. You know, it just makes you feel so, it, it really like lifts my spirits. Even though they don't see the film, they've been reading the content on social media. Coming back to your question, William. And that makes you really, you know, you know you're reaching. It's far reaching. And and this person said we're Afro-Australians. I never knew that term existed, you know. <laughs> but I love the fact that it's pivoted from like, you know, maybe Aboriginal now might be something like saying um Oriental or you know, might be well, they, they have a sizable, there's not a sizable African community like immigrant communities from like yes. Sudan, yes. So then, you know, there's a there's the Kenya, they're large African size African communities. Yes. That's I right. Wonder, you don't count South Africans as part of that, but yeah, yeah. They, I wanted to ask you a, 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 another question, which is I think 
you've experienced also how African film has changed. Like, well, what I mean by like what kind of stories African filmmakers tell or can't, well, firstly, what they are often being allowed to tell, uh, what, are they, what they are trying to tell. Can you say like something about what you've noticed, like how this has changed? And we discussed this in the, with the other panelists, with the other guests. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit there about sort of autier, German uh, mm -hmm. cinema, you know, this kind of more socially concerned cinema versus or the sort of big theme cinema and now mm -hmm. this kind of more personal cinema. Like what are some of the things that you've seen change? Like and 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 maybe perhaps also whether whether the internet, like the availability of the technology, it's more democratic, whether that's had an impact on what, what people are trying to make, what kind of stories uh, people are trying to tell. And then it's the last part of that. Mm -hmm. What other kinds of stories do you think are still coming? Well, that's mm. it. You know, I guess they say every generation puts their mark on the, you know, their own stamp on the story. So I believe, uh, you know, you guys were speaking of the auteurs, like Sembens, the Mambetis, the Sulimansises. And we still show programs some of those works because if something is well done, a story is well told, it's never dated, you know? And so I think if you are curating a, a festival, you're also telling a story. So you're weaving together the past into the present, into the future. And I feel as, you know, coming back to your question, it's not that so much the themes have changed, but I think these, each generation finds a new window, a new angle to tell the story of their moment, right? And so if you say that we're still battling with all the, various you know um challenges that face our community our world our gender you know human rights you know so and and, and especially while well, with technology now let's say this new generation has more freedom you know in a way and um and also they can make their own films without relying on um outside support you know, I guess you can make these fancy iPhones, you, which we've also shown films made on these fancy iPhones, and it's amazing, short films. And, um, you know, there's more freedom in a way. Um, and I think um, then you have our homegrown industry of Nollywood and also South Africans industry. So you have, so there's, you don't, you have, these younger filmmakers who are not necessarily looking outside and are working on the continent. And we have quite a few of them on, on in, in this year's program and they support each other's work. You know, they're producing each other's work. So, so um, I feel that, that's why I'm saying really, we're the last frontier. We're a billion people strong. We have to start looking at not looking at the Netflix and the Hulus and whoever, but to start thinking seriously, you know, if you are the filmmaker or you are the producer, start thinking, how do you finesse? How are we going to like sort of firewall? Because they're coming at us, really. This is where, you know, yeah. Uh -huh. I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you, earlier you said mm. that all these films that are on Netflix, but they're not, they sort of buried and unless you have an interest in it, you know, if, if, if for example, you tweet about, if you tweet about a film that I'll go see if it's, if it's available for streaming and I'll, I'll save it and I'll watch it. Do you think there's a need? I know you say we should maybe, we should not pivot somewhere else. 
But in the meantime, what is what is like, I don't know, what is the relationship of say somebody like you to a Netflix or an Amazon? To you, would you curate for them? Or how do you think, what should our relationship then be towards them? Because you are, you've done, you know, they, they're sort of coming now and they, they're getting all the benefits of what you did. But what should your relationship as a curator now be with them? I think, um, of course, I'd like someone to give me a salary <laughs> because this is a thankless job. But at the same time, I don't know if I want to give up my freedom. You know, I really, at some point, of course, someone else has to take the helm of this organization. That Does that mean they go under, do we go under someone's umbrella? Because I don't think, I and I wouldn't expect someone else to make the sacrifice I've made for, you know, but it's really, and Semben always said, don't ever, like he knew, right? He, don't ever give up your freedom. Don't, don't, because, and I tell you, these, a lot of these other, these established organizations we work with, they know we're not going to embarrass ourselves. So we're not going to embarrass them because as I said, it's not, it's more than just showing a film. It's also maintaining something, you know, because we're healing. We're trying to heal ourselves at the same time as we watch those films. And, you know, because we've right now with this pandemic and Black Lives Matter, you know, you've never given space to breathe, you know, we're yeah. always traumatized. And then someone jumps on us and says, starts ticking off another box, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's exhausting. Right, if, we, if we saw a romantic film, then everybody's sort of like, oh, why are they showing a, why are they showing a love story? Why, yeah. why are they showing something about romance? Yeah. I mean, I'm remembering now Akin, Akin mm -hmm. film, mm -hmm. uh, Tell Me Sweet Something. Yeah. A sweet mm -hmm. little romantic mm -hmm. film. To ask to ask a question that relates to exactly this thoughts, it 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 makes you wonder if like how useful is the category of African cinema to begin with, right? Because it, it almost seems like you end up uh falling into these crossroads where you produce something and it's not African enough, mm -hmm. or you produce something and it's too African and it can't be appreciated by a universal audience. So, I mean, I'm interested to hear from you as someone who's watched the evolution of a lot of this material over the years and has seen it track the political changes that have happened as well, such as globalization, the rise of mm -hmm. these technologies that we're talking about at the moment. Yeah, what do you make of the category? What what does it contribute? Does it contribute anything? Um, well, first and foremost, I have to say also there's this always this sort of struggle with even with filmmakers. I'm not an African. Why do you do I have to have this label? And you know what what do you mean African? I'm from Cameroon. I'm from Burundi. I'm like, well, I'm reappropriating the word. Is are you saying then it's it's a bad word? I mean, no. We, how many filmmakers are from Burundi? How many? You know, even within Africa, we're, we're, you know, with all the internal warfare that has happened, the displacement, these kids, they've had a spotty education. So, you know, even the traditional education that can be your, 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 your compass, you know, your guiding compass. I'm speaking, I'll speak spe specifically for my region in Sierra Leone, where you, you find that a lot of, you know, this sort of disenfranchisement, this, this, um, displacement and and has really um broken down 
you know, a community, a culture. Uh, and so for us, I'm reappropriating something and cinema maybe is a quick study, but I think it's really important also to insert that into the, into the sort of consciousness of these communities. So let's say um, for us to, so I will start with, yes, we're African cinema. And then we start breaking down regional cinemas, maybe, you know, because also when you're curating, you're trying to also, um, yeah, educate, right? Um, so you see, and even the publication, Sean, which you, which you wrote an essay for, we, the first one was African cinema, then we did regional con voices, conversations. So this is how, you know, you slowly, when you, someone becomes more acclimated, more comfortable, and you start, you know, um, sort of building the blocks around the house. Does that answer your question? That does answer the question. In terms of building the blocks around the house, man, you like to build and start things, such as the African Film Festival in New York. We were talking earlier about starting an African streaming service for all of these films that we want to screen mm -hmm. to people is that is that something you'd ever consider doing at some point we would we would happily participate and help you set yeah it up. well you know i mean because there's so much and speaking i think sarah was speaking of the authors like criterion okay we speak yeah. of the netflix and the hulu and the amazon but criterion for example film movement who mm -hmm. they just picked up actually you die at 20. they all have streaming channels you know streaming platforms rather so it's a matter of having that access. So if I started, yes, I would like to, but I'd like to do it on the continent where I'd like to make this work accessible to, to people on the continent. How do I do that? So that's the challenge because I can mm -hmm. understand, you know, with our people, if they say, uh, and I've, I've, I've actually witnessed this, well, I bought the film, why can't I show it to everyone in the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> Why can't we duplicate it and sell it down the street? But it doesn't work like that. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> and, um, but that would be my, my dream. And I think on the continent, particularly, it would be a challenge because, well, it would, I think there is a need for it because I think Dylan at the sort of, in the beginning of the program said that we should talk about, you know, that sort of phrase, we should talk about, but we should talk about, um, something like, um, SOMAX. And the way that Multi Choice, yeah. which is a South African satellite company, dominates mm -hmm. what people see, whether mm -hmm. whether whether it's on the streaming service, whether it's on their satellite services, where they've created like they have dedicated channels to mm -hmm. sort of Hollywood, South African films. Uh, you know, the I forgot what the local South African like was. African magic was in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, Africa magic and yeah. magic. Africa magic. So, so there is there magic is there, all over. They have a certain kind of monopoly, and it would be interesting to see how one could challenge that monopoly using streaming services. Given that now, you know, more and more people have access to the to the internet. I mean, for my my father, he, he yes. now, we, yeah. we are watching He has Wi-Fi, so yeah. he never used to do that. I think he was like, "What the hell?" He said the other way. He said, "Hi-Fi." for Wi-Fi, he's eight years old, and he's beginning to understand about streaming. So I do think there's definitely an opportunity and there's room to do something. Oh yeah, something and also, around streaming, yeah. And this, we have such a wide diaspora yeah. that we're, 
we really, I mean, and this is what the cinema allows me to 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 re, yeah, go into these spaces and see. Wow, Africa's reach and her contribution is so great, and the you know the shots, the short format right. is really fantastic, and. Uh, and one of these filmmakers complained, well, I've done so many and my friends now, you know, my um, contemporaries are making features. I said, no, don't don't look at it like that because some some of your contemporaries made great features, but then the first, the shorts rather than the first feature they made is like, wow, you know, I wish they could continue making shorts because it's not so easy to make a short film. So I said, do make as many shorts as you can, build your body of work, and we can show like a whole festival around you because you have 20 shorts and, you know, we build we, we build a program around that. So speaking of, um, so this in this year's festival, we have at least, uh, I think five short programs but that makes me, and it's from all over speaking, you know, answering your question, William, like just reaching into different spaces, you know, even Iran, you know, the Iranian diaspora, because Africans are in the South. Of everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Africans, Africans. I, I think this is, we could, we could talk all afternoon. I think there's a beautiful, um, um, the, the clips that, that mm -hmm. uh, has been picking you. Uh, picking just sort of while we're talking just kind of shows you the you know the diversity of images yes. kind of, yes. just the incredible sort of like how it looks on the screen um and and i i, I think what i want to say at least about near the end of the program i think people forget what i think you've done really successfully is to how to bridge that gap between popular cinema but also cinema that is if yes. people would call it art house i think like people forget that you brought African cinema to like Lincoln Center, but at the same time, that cinema is showing in a park in Harlem. It's showing right. in a park in Brooklyn. And it travels around the country. It goes around the country. And I think a lot of this kind of, yeah. the, 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 there's a way in which one could replicate like these networks that have been established like in in the physical world that we could see how this how this could um, play out um, online. And I think there's a sort of undercurrent here, the people who've been on the program today, they are saying maybe we should all have a chat at some point about how we can make a streaming service, an African streaming service of some kind, which is on the continent. My ancestors game, we'll be having a meeting. It's going to be a post show after this, where we have an email going around. Um, and, and I think we're going to inform those who are watching that I think there's definitely um, something. Yeah, I think Sarah and uh, Sarah is also mentioning this Quelly TV. Iroko TV. I think there's, there's things we can learn from this. Mm -hmm. Country-specific ones, like the Senegal has a specific streaming service that we can learn from and how we can not reinvent the wheel and not make the same Absolutely. mistake. Absolutely. That's the problem, fragmenting ourselves always. You know, yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. Let's, let's, yeah. I think there's something there. There's something in the water. There's something in the water today. Yeah. On that note, I wanted to thank you, Mayan, for being patient with us. We didn't in the beginning. We Mm -hmm. But we made it. We we got here. Yeah. And for me, it's excellent people. People who don't know, I've known my end since I first started moving to New York in like 2001, and I used to help out at the festival. Yes. I think she probably was frustrated by me some days not turning up. But no, I always but... enjoyed being part of. This. So for me, when I say when I when I say that people don't understand like the weight and what you've done for film, African film particularly in this market in the United States, which is the biggest market for film, 
I mean, people forget outside of streaming, African film barely make it into a theater here. Well, yeah. so this is this is something that we must underscore. And I want to give you, like as the kids would say, we want to give you your flowers here. We're all doing our bit for the greater good. That's how I look at it, you know? It's not about me personally. It's about, I love the word that South Africa, Ubuntu. I am because you are. I love that. Yes, you that's know? a great sentiment. That's yeah. what this is about. And I'm really proud when we can accomplish something together. It's, 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 you know, it's uplifting. So on to the next chapter. We, we're on to the next chapter and we want to we wanna be there to help you get there. So on that note, I want to thank my Neti. Thank, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming. My, my co-host. From South Africa, whoever is <laughs> We want to thank our, my co-host, Will, Will Shoki, and our producer, Antoinette Engel, and also for the other guests that were on, Sarah Hanneberg. Uh, Dylan Valley and Choho Koopa. Thank you very much for having a great discussion about film. Yeah, and we'll see everybody else next week. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye.